You're listening to the Straight to Video Podcast with Rob Lane. All right, what is happening? You doing good? I sure hope so, and thank you so much for checking out my podcast, Straight to Video. On today's show, it gives me massive pleasure to welcome Todd Chase on, and it's a chat that had so many cool elements, I'm excited for you to hear it. Not only is Todd the bass player for the band Tough, who were one of the last bands of the Hollywood Sunset Strip heyday of the late 80s and early 90s to get a major label record deal and shot at the big time, but for the last few years he's been a partner in an amazing food business called Smoking Rock and Roll, with another veteran of the music scene, Billy Morris of Warrant, and also more recent Tough lineups. Smoking Rock and Roll are based quite the distance from Hollywood and can be found out in Ohio where Todd and Billy who makes a surprise appearance in our chat run a series of food trucks serving up quality barbecue with a real rock and roll attitude. So as you can imagine there's a lot to dive into with Todd's career but that is just scratching the surface. What is super cool is that Todd is from a family of successful bass players. Both of his elder brothers also headed out to the West Coast to chase their dreams and each of them landed record deals. Kenny with the band Keel and Greg with Badlands. That's pretty insane when you think about it and the chances of just one chase on getting that shot had to have been one in a million, let alone all three. During our talk we get into all of this along with Todd's journey out to Hollywood, an encounter with the band Poison which could have gone way downhill but instead was turned on its head and worked out in Todd's favour. We chat about his time in the UK both back in the day and more recently, Tuff's adventures on the Monsters of Rock cruise and what is really special to hear is how open Todd is about how he was as a young musician working towards his dreams and he shows an incredible amount of humility which is very humbling to hear and shows why he's so successful in what he does today. I think you're really gonna take something from our talk. Before that, our friends Dead Skull Coffee continue to support this show and are offering you, the listener, 15% off any order through their website, deadskullcoffee.co.uk. Simply add the promo code STV on checkout and that money off is yours. Also, big shout to the latest member of the Straight to Video Patreon page. Thanks so much to Dave Shipley for getting on board and showing your support. I really, truly appreciate it, as I do everyone else who has become a patron. If you too would like to help grow this show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash stv pod for all the info and exclusives you can find okay let's do this after our chat if you want to learn more about todd and smoking rock and roll then you can find them on facebook and instagram or visit smokingrockandroll.com and the classic tough album what comes around goes around has recently been remastered and repackaged by tough singer stevie rochelle himself and is available from toughcds.com but for now please enjoy my straight to video chat with todd chase chase on Story for you. 
Yes. What's up, brother? How you doing? Good, man. How you doing, mate? Yeah, pretty good, mate. Pretty good. Where you at? I am at the Smoking Rock and Roll headquarters. We're doing food truck shit and fucking off and just talking with some of my guys about, you know, I didn't know if it was video or audio. So in the event we the, the conversation takes us into food, I've got my kitchen manager, Matt, here, and Billy might pop in and say hi. Wherever the conversation takes us is where it takes us. I don't have the greatest memory. Like, I don't have like a, you know, Stevie Rochelle can quote every single aspect of our lives from the minute. I'm a little more of a blurb in it. I was living that rock and roll lifestyle back in the day, so... I sent my strippers home because it was too early for their ship. Yeah, my KM's still here. And trust me, you want to see him strip. He's a sexy motherfucker. How did you enjoy the recent Monster Rock cruise? I mean, could you imagine you'd be playing tough songs 30 years later on a freaking cruise ship? <laughs> I suppose back in the day, I would have thought that doing the cruise would have been like the death of the musician. You know, like now I'm playing with Lawrence Welk and fucking it's where musicians go to die is on a cruise ship. But in reality... It's where you go to revive, you know, is you kind of go there and you, you realize that there's this giant community still that loves 80s and 90s, you know, hair metal, hard rock, whatever category, you know, we fit in, you know, whatever bottle the top squeezes onto. So, you know, that's kind of most of my thought in the early days, like, oh, my God, if I ever land on a cruise, my fucking career is over. Little did I realize my career ended a long time ago. But when you do it and we just did our fourth, it's really one of the most beautiful fan connecting things because when you're at a club or a pub or a venue a stadium whatever it is the fans don't have access to you nor do i to them i mean unless i choose to go out and you know pony up at the bar or maybe go hang out at the merch stand or whatever so you don't really get that interaction which i'm not the best of small talk when it comes to like you know if i know you or we have a relationship but I try to absorb the fact that, you know, for some people, it's very special to interact with musicians. And for me, it is, too. But I just can't literally sit there and have like a two hour conversation with somebody I just met while ordering, a, you know, a cup of coffee in the morning on the cruise. But, you know, the bands are wildly accessible. The last one we just did was the Alice Cooper cruise. You know, you don't really see Alice, but you see his whole band. You see his family from Bisto Blanco, which, by the way, was next level kick ass. Chuck's a monster. Dude, the whole bands are like, I didn't realize that the guitar player singer was Alice's bass player. I'm just, you know, while I'm a fan of music, I don't do the deep dive into my favorite acts. You know, I know what I like to listen to. And then as the artists are announced within the Monsters of Rock cruise, you know, every cruiser is like whatever, 30, 40 bands or whatever they announce, you know. I've seen Kicks a thousand times and I love Kicks, but I want to go see the bands that either I've not seen in a very, very, very long time, like like a Bane, who I adore, or a Bisto Blanco that I'd never seen, or a lot of these new guys, you know, the Stop Stops and the Eclipses of the World. And you just realize how the generations, no pun intended to a tough song, but the generation of music, it's still there. The vibe is still there. There is still an audience I would be hard pressed to say I'm a pioneer because I'm not. I mean, I think, you know, the pioneering was done back with Kiss and Alice Cooper, but I might be the last pioneer to show up at the end of the late 80s, early 90s, you know, as Tuff was, you know, making their headway and, and getting things done in Hollywood. So just being able for me to interact with bands and bands that I'm a fan of, walking around the cruise ship, you know, I the beauty of the cruise, I get to take my wife. And we, you know, we take our families. So if I was doing a one-off date, let's say we're doing M3, I probably wouldn't take my wife because I'm in and out and it's business. I mean, it's fun and it's a great job, but there's still business to tend to. But when you're on a cruise ship for five days 
and you only play two shows in five days, there's a lot of free time. So the free time is a big plus factor for me because it first off, it takes me out of Cleveland in February where it's, you know, two feet of snow on the ground, you know, and I get, I get to go to Cozumel, you know, as maybe some of your listeners know, or as you may know, anybody that follows me on, on Facebook or Instagram or any of that stuff, you know, I'm a big food guy. I've reinvented myself as a hair metal bass player to a food truck shop. I obviously, I have my likes and my attractions towards the music side of what happens in these events, but I'm also there for the food. I want to go to these random hole-in-the-wall spots in Cozumel or Labadee or wherever the ship drops you off, and I want to eat this crazy ultra-ethnic food. Oh, walking in, Billy Morris. How's it going, Billy? What's up, Rob? How you doing, man? Good to see you. Good to see you. I didn't want to bother Todd or bother you, but I did want to bother That's fine. Yeah, he he always wants to bother me. And (laughs) Billy, my best friend, my partner in smoking rock and roll. How long have we been together doing this now? Seven, eight years? Seven, eight years, yeah. Yeah, if I do a quick segue, when I was moving from Los Angeles to Cleveland, Phoebe, singer of Tough, says, there's one guy in Cleveland you got to know, and that's Billy Morris. And I'm like, Honestly, at that time, I'm like, I have no fucking idea who Billy Morse was. I, I I wasn't really in the music scene, but I was coming here knowing that I was going to maybe reintegrate myself into it. So I was here maybe a year and we maybe sent one or two texts or become friends on Facebook, but never really hung out or done anything of great depth. At one point, I had to retrack some bass tracks. So let me keep telling the story from here. So Go. Stevie says, hey, I need you to record Todd. So I call Todd. Todd lived on the east side. So... You know, I'm going to go pick Todd up in my van, which overheated on the way back, right? (laughs) But anyways, you know, think about this. I'm a tough fan my whole life, and I'm looking at this really cute-looking guy in all the tough pictures. I pulled on his driveway, and here comes this mean man with a mohawk and a headband. Who is this guy? But that was the start of a great friendship and a great partnership, and I love this guy. Yeah, I think we sat in the studio, and he's like, so what are your plans while you're in Cleveland? Like, I'm going to start a food truck. Billy is a entrepreneur and he's owned bars and nightclubs here in Cleveland and had recently sold one and wanted to partition that money into a food truck. And he's like, dude, if you can figure out how to run it, I'll buy it. And I'm like, done deal. We talked about names and stuff. Yeah. So here's the deal. I owned bars for a while and never made a penny, but I sold the bars and built the trucks and Todd makes me many pennies. (laughs) Todd's the only guy that came through with his promises and he does a great job and everybody else robbed me and stole from me and cheated me. And I know that Todd would go through a wall for me and and my family. So I would head first. Billy, we have a mutual friend in uh, Rain Belcher. He's been on the show a couple of times. Oh, yeah. You know who that is? I don't. His CD's in your lobby. What is it? She's my apple pie. Oh, yeah. He's a legend. He's a legend. Yeah. It's a real funny story. So you saw the apple pie video? So when I get to that field, they go, stand right here, and you guys are going to rock all morning. So we're rocking. They stood me on a fire ant hill in the middle of South Carolina in the heat wave, and I started getting eaten alive by fire ants. So if you watch that video, I'm really getting down because I'm getting eaten by fire ants. It's like he's doing some sort of a heavy metal stop. And, 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 <laughs> after that, it's nothing but whatever uh, ointment you put on your legs yeah. to cover all the ant bites. Surprise visit by my best friend and business partner, Billy Morris. So we did tough. I've done Substance D and or Black and then came here and I fucked around with cover bands for a little bit and realized I don't enjoy playing other people's music as much as I enjoy playing my music. But we did this food truck thing that has been my life 
for the last eight years, you know, Tuff does a handful of shows a year and we could probably do more. Stevie often calls and says, Hey, can we do something in July? And I'm like, well, dude, I got three food trucks out and I'm a little bit busy with all that. He's like, God damn it. (laughs) Yeah, no, he's actually, he's he's super understanding because, you know, I got a household to maintain, you know, I, I don't have kids, but I got a wife and, you know, we've got pets and we live in a nice home here in what's Bay Village, Ohio. So it's maybe like 10 minutes west of downtown Cleveland, right off the lake. I mean, I don't have the lake in my backyard, but if I was a good baseball player, I could maybe hit the shoreline from my house. So you say you're out near Cleveland at the moment, but are you born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona? So born in Northern California, up near Oakland and Castro Valley. My dad, my folks, they come from Eastern Canada, Nova Scotia and such, immigrated to America went to Northern California. I was created. I don't want to say my dad knocked up my mom, even though I just said it because that sounds creepy. But nonetheless, you know, we moved to Arizona, I think shortly after my younger brother Mitch was born when I was two or three. And then I spent my entire young life there all the way up until I dropped out of high school my senior year. Me and George, the original guitar player from Tough, met our junior year in high school in Northern Phoenix and we're inseparable, best friends. Everything was amazing. What did you bond on? Was it just music? Yeah, for sure. We were the only two long-haired guys in the high school. So, you know, as I was getting my ass handed to me by the jocks, you know, or vice versa, you know, we needed to have backup. So it was kind of a thing to where, you know, there's strength in numbers. And then, of course, the jocks, their girlfriends thought we were cute. You know, I, I think at the time, junior in high school, you're like 16. I maybe had hair down to here, but I was spiking it up. You know, I'd just been introduced uh, the first Motley Crue record. So, you know, they're calling me Rod Stewart or, you know, faggot or any other, you know, the last words worse than the other ones. But nonetheless, you know, we found strength in numbers and meeting. And he was the first guy we were in guitar class. So we're both taking guitar classes. It's like we both knew how to play already. This is a great way to scratch out an hour of the day. We'll go to guitar class because we already know how to play guitar. So he came in, he knew how to play Diary of a Madman. So you was impressed. I was impressed. We didn't even know each other. I think they made you do like a little audition, you know, your first day in guitar class. And I probably did something like, I don't know, I may have done something as simple as breaking the law or smoke on the water. And then he came in with Diary of a Madman. I'm like, fuck this guy. I hate him. You know, I thought I was going to be the coolest rocker kid in school or the only rocker kid in school. So at first we were a little standoffish. And uh, my brother, Greg from Badlands had a local band in Phoenix at that time. And he was asking me to hand out flyers in the high school for people to come to this surgical steel show. And I asked if he wanted to help me out. And from there we had bonded, we roommated, we were best pals for a very, very long time. You mentioned your brother, Greg, then you're from like a family of, is it seven kids? There was seven. I mean, obviously time has taken its toll, but Greg is still actively, he's probably, Greg's definitely more active than I am. Greg has the Atomic Kings, which is a band based out of Phoenix. But, you know, he obviously, he did Badlands. You know, he was in Steeler for a minute. Greg's the oldest of us, of the boys. Well, of us all. I have one sister, uh, not a bass player. So she is not in Vixen. But Greg was the oldest. Kenny was just older than me. And he was the uh, bass player in Keel for their run from 
above the law to, I could be wrong, but I want to say Final Frontier, maybe a record after that, somewhere in that area. I mean, that's nuts that yourself and two brothers, Greg and Kenny, both picked up the bass guitar and each had successful careers in that you both worked with Cyan Bands. That's nuts, really. You know, and my wife always has this question. So we do these cruises and Eddie Trunk is usually a host of the cruise and there's that thing, Stump the Trunk. You know, she's like, I want to meet this guy, whether it's in an elevator or at a fucking dinner or if I'm at the show and just be like, can you name me the name of the family where there's three bass players that were in 80s, 90s rock bands that are all brothers? And she's never had that opportunity. Like we saw him once in an elevator, I think maybe on the second or third cruise, and she just didn't have the sack to go for. She was like, oh, I can't do it. And he might recognize me, but I think I was, you know, I was going by Chase in the beginning of my career because everything I was getting is that you're Greg and Kenny's little brother. And I kind of wanted to create my own lane. Fast forward, you know, a handful of years later and I embrace my family name. You know, everybody had a stage name back in the eighties. That was just par for the course back then. But yeah, she's always had this dream of trying to stump the trunk on the three bass playing brothers that were all in signed acts within, you know, say 1990 to 1994, whatever the dates are. I'm, I'm not the best. You can ask Stevie the dates. He would know them. Was you already getting into rock and roll when your brothers started picking up bass? Was you into it already? You know, I was raised on it, brother. So, you know, my brother Greg is, and Greg, I apologize if I outdate you, but I want to say Greg's, you know, 10, 12 years older than me, give or take. Kenny's probably three years older than me. You know, out of a family of seven, that, that's a general range, you know, good old Catholic family. Parents were banging out bunnies. But uh, I remember my very first concert, my other brother, Kirk, took me to was the Kiss Dynasty show in Phoenix. And it was my first exposure to live music that wasn't my brother Greg's band. Right. You went in big then. It was like, holy fuck. This is, you know, you know, Paul Stanley's not winning any, he's not on the cover of Guitar Player Magazine for being the next Dimebag Daryl, but he's a legend. And he's obviously, you know, they Kiss has put on great shows and they've stood the test of time, which not many bands can say, especially when you're painting yourself up like a demon, a cat, a, a space dude, and some star kid. Where was you in that arena? I was probably in the cheap seats, no doubt. Losing your mind. Well, I was losing my I didn't know what to expect. You know, it smelled like pot and people were running around and people were rushing. You know, this is back in, gotta say, late 70s, early, early 80s. I mean, I, whenever Dynasty came out, again, I'm not the best on dates, but it was the Dynasty tour. I don't even remember who opened. I, they probably got booed off. That was peak kiss as well with all the merchandise and everything at that point. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I and it was kind of, you know, I don't remember the opening acts for any of those bands, because if you were an opening act for Van Halen, Kiss, anybody, your job was to get booed off after two songs. People thrived on, at least in America, that was the case. You know, I think now everybody's like, I want to see more of a show. And they're a little more wanting to be exposed to new music or new artists or whatever. But back in the day when Van Halen was headlining stadiums or Kiss was, you only saw, if at best, one or two songs of an opening band. You could have been Led Zeppelin, but called yourself something, you know, bag of dicks. You got booed off. That was just it. You were getting booed off and people thrived on that. So I believe it was Kiss Dynasty, Cheap Trick was my second and then ZZ Top was my third with my brother, Greg. And we went to Tucson and we tailgated out there and he jumped a fence. And I want to say it was maybe ZZ Top and Scorpions were playing together, which is not the most cohesive mix, but nonetheless, a great show to see. 
And he jumped the fence because he wanted, you know, he was still a fan, you know, even though he was the biggest bass player in Phoenix or in, in probably anywhere in Arizona at that time. Was he like getting a reputation as being like such a great bass player at shining the bands in a way? He had multiple reputations, probably first and foremost as being an amazing bass player. And, and I say today, all bloodline aside, he's the best bass player I've ever seen. I remember hearing demo tapes of him with Yingbei Malmsteen when he was in L.A. I'm not sure if it's pre-Steeler or post-Steeler, but being his kid brother, I was still his fan. Like I would I was his fan. He was my Clint Eastwood. He was my hero. And I would just go to these shows and on. And I remember at some point, I think he sent me a demo tape, which, God, what would that be worth today of him going note for note with Yingbei? And then, you know, I think he auditions for Ozzy at some point. You know, he does the Steeler gig and then he finds himself with Jake, which they met through the Ozzy gig or the Ozzy audition to where they created Badlands. He was also known for being a very tough guy, a good fighter, somebody not to be trifled with or fucked around with because my family was kind of raised in a boxing environment. And while it didn't so much stick with me as much as it did my older brothers, you know, my brothers, Kenny and Greg, they were some of the toughest dudes I ever knew. Like you would never want to see them in a street fight ever you'd want to see it you just wouldn't want to be on the other end of it do you remember when greg moved out to la i think he moved out in 82 was that like a massive deal not just for him but for you to see that happen or do you remember much about it it was because if it was 82 that would put me in my sophomore year of high school to where i was just kind of figuring out that i'm not going to be a doctor or a lawyer and i tried to be a drummer then i tried to be a guitar player and then it was greg that came to me at one point and said dude there's a thousand guitar players in the world. Drummers are all a bunch of fucking dicks. Everybody needs a good bass player and you can't sing. So scratch that one out. But everybody needs a good bass player. So let's get you into the bass. And I don't know that we ever sat down and had like formal him and me hours on end, him showing me how to play the bass. But I do remember him showing me some rudimentary things. And but for the most part, you know, I think I learned from watching him and watching Kenny and listening, spending hours and hours on end with headphones in my house because my parents would scream at me if they could hear the music, figuring out how to dissect what I thought a bass player should be. Greg came from a very classic rock level of where, you know, Geezer Butler's probably still even way later than what he was influenced by, but his technique and his skill set is so far above. Anybody I've ever seen, unless we're like talking like Billy Sheehan guys or stuff like that, which again, winery dogs or, you know, Mr. Big, I look at that stuff and just go, Jesus Christ, I'm an embarrassment to the bass playing world. Get out of it. Because I try to do it and there's just, I did not get that coordination process built into my hands. But Greg is not a Billy Sheehan and Billy Sheehan is not a Greg, but both legitimately two guys that you can just sit there and go, it's just unfair to the rest of us. That's like being, you know, the head chef at McDonald's versus Gordon Ramsay. You're just like, no way. I cannot make a beef Wellington out of a Big Mac. It's just not possible. <laughs> so um, the first lineup of Tough formed in 85. Was that your first band or had you played with people before then? No, I had had plenty of garage bands that I had toyed around with, you know, and I had come in with a terrible attitude. You know, once me and George kind of connected from Tough, everybody else was like, I'm Greg's little brother. I'm Kenny's little brother. And my big brother, you know, this is a 16, 15, 17 year old kid telling these other kids how my brothers are rock stars. And, you know, through my connections, we're going to get a big record deal. Not realizing the amount of blood, sweat and tears and blood, sweat and blood, sweat and tears and tears and blood and sweat that was going to have to go into that process. 
probably more tears than blood, but there was a little bit of all of it for sure. So I had to have been a terrible young bandmate because I thought I was better than I was, thought I was bigger than I was, thought I had all these connections that didn't really exist. I mean, I was related, but it wasn't like it wasn't like Mike Barney was knocking on my door when I was, you know, 16 years old saying, hey, bring up this new kid. I mean, my brothers were still trying to break, but I was using that as ammunition to put myself in a controlling space within these bands, which is not really a good formula. When you're starting, you know, if you're not going to be collaborative with the guys that you're working with, and it took me many, many years, probably even post tough to get to that math, because I always thought I was the smartest guy on the block, which is a bad way to, in my opinion, as a businessman now to go about it. I want to bring people in that are clearly better and smarter than me. That's going to make me not only a better musician, but it's going to create a better product. But it takes a long time to get to that because, you know, you kind of get knocked around as a young kid, which I'm sure you've gone through that on your side of being ostracized for being a pretty boy or a glam dude or a rock guy. Or if everybody else around you is, is a wrestler or a cheerleader or a football player, we're the misfits of the world. You can never go back. But in looking back, I wished that I would have been a lot more mature in my approach to not only songwriting and music, but more importantly, into my relationships with my bandmates. Everything that I do now, I'm older now. I'm 55. Dana, my wife, is probably going to watch this. Tell me if I'm wrong, babe. But I think I'm 55. That's how old I am. But I have a non-confrontational, everybody gets a say-so in everything that happens. It's not like a full-on, you know, Buddhist mentality where we're all sitting there, you know, singing chants or whatever. But I want everybody to have a good time. I'm not John Paul Jones. I'm not Geezer Butler. And I'm not Greg Chason. I'm Todd Chason. And my band saw the success that it saw. And I'm really fortunate that, you know, people still want to see what we do. It's great to have that headspace now rather than the other way around, <laughs> that you turned into that guy when you was young. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. That's a beautiful way to look at it, brother. No doubt. And, you know, I, I don't think until you said that, that I've ever thought of it, you know, because everybody's young and you do dumb shit. So I don't think I have any real enemies from back when I was a kid. I, I don't, I'm not sure how connected I am with. There might be a guy that would find me on Facebook and be like, dude, I was your drummer for 30 minutes back in Phoenix. And be like, man, I'm so sorry. because I probably was a giant prick. Whereas now I'm just I'm just grateful for that anybody that wants to count to four and play three and a half minutes worth of music. I love that. I think it's been said that when Tough started, you're a lot heavier because that's what you're all into at the time. Then I believe Poison came along and kind of changed the playing field for everyone. If you want to go into it, you don't have to. But can you elaborate a little on the story of when you guys played with them? And I think Bobby hooked up with your girlfriend. I can. Yeah. So when Tough was founded, we were listening to Accept. Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. So a heavier genre than what was considered to be, a, you know, a three note songs, you know, the Talk Dirty to Me, for example. Not to say there's only three notes in the song, but it's not the most complicated song in the world of songs. All due respect to my friends in Poison. I'm dating a girl at this bar. It's called Bootleggers. I'm 18, 17, whatever. And her dad owns the bar and says, hey, I've got a flyer from this band. We'd like you to open for them. Shows me the flyer of Poison. They look absolutely fantastic and hideous at the same time. I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. And not that anybody else was looking much better back in those days. You know, you you got straight guys wearing leather chaps and, you know, whatever you can do to pop off the page to where you're somebody different from the next guy that's playing either right after you or the day after you or the week after you. So Poison comes to town. We do the show. They're very nice guys. This is pre-release of Look What the Cat Dragged In, if I recall. We had a band house 
30 minutes away from wherever this nightclub was. We rehearsed at and is where we held our after party. Is this a baby Tough Muff mansion? It is the early Tough Muff mansion. And basically, I think Michael at this point is in the band and it's me and George. And then we probably had either Terry Fox or, um, ah, shit, Mike, you're going to kill me. You know, we went through a couple of rounds of singers of guys that, you know, and again, they were all probably great. Jim Gillette, it might have been Jim. At any rate, we go through this party. I sit in a room with Brett and the girl that owns the house. So he begins to have a diabetic thing going on and he needs to get a shot. We got to give him an insulin shot. So me and Nadine give him a shot. He recovers. Everything's fine. It was a very small window. It wasn't like, you know, he wasn't fishing and flopping and he didn't go into like a full-blown seizure. He knew something was coming, but he needed some help. So we gave him a blast. And I don't know if Brett remembers this. I've asked him about it. He's like, yeah, I remember it. But you kind of say, yeah, I remember that to a thousand people you meet every time you meet people. So all that transpires. And then one of my roadies comes into the bedroom that we're hanging out with Brett while he's kind of getting his bearings back and tells me that my girlfriend's on the tour bus with Bobby Dahl. And, you know, this is a girl I've been trying to wrangle for a minute. As a senior in high school or a dropout senior, no, she was well endowed. She was pretty. You're finally looking cool. You're in the band. I'm in the band. I got one of the hotter chicks in the band. And now the guy from L.A. is fucking banging my chick in his tour bus. I believe it was a bus. It could have been an RV even. I don't even remember. And right immediately goes to me as he sees me kind of light up. And again, not that I'm my brother, Greg or Kenny, as far as when it comes down to throwing down blows back then, I'm like, I got to go represent. This is an insult. I got to go fuck this dude up. And Brett's like, time out. Don't do it. And this is after we had already sat and spoken with Brett for a good period of time. And he was praising the band like you've got potential. So just a real quick rewind. We were an Iron Maiden except style of band. Poison comes to town. We change our whole script. And now we're a Poison band and we open for Poison. We're wearing a little more makeup. The hair's a little more spiked. We're wearing some fringe and glitter and scarves and all this shit. And Brett recognizes it and says, you got, you guys have something here, which I can't imagine what that would have been, but I'm grateful that he thought so. So his thing was like, don't do anything. And this is how I remember it. If you don't do anything, we'll take off from the party here. Come to LA. I'll turn you on to booking agents, publicists, managers. We'll give you couches, beds, furniture you know, see if we can get you guys on a couple of shows with us and all of this stuff. And, you know, at that time in Hollywood, they were, they were the big dog. Just don't break my bass player's nose. Just don't break my bass player's nose or probably more importantly, you know, have him punch me and break his hand on my face. And I'm like, done deal. I mean, I've only been with the chick for a couple of weeks. So I was like, sold. You just got to take her with you. And I got to say, we fast forward, I don't know, maybe a year down the road. He gave me his number. We get to L.A., I call him and he does everything he says he's going to do. Now, he probably had other conversations with Michael and maybe with Jim or uh, George. But the conversation with me was that I promised to hook you up with these people, which ended up being like Deb Rosner. I'm so bad with names, but I do remember Deb is probably being the first one, which was their publicist, which is she knows how to get you in magazines and, and all of this stuff. He did everything he said he was going to do. And to this day, you know, he wrote a song on our debut record. It wasn't the collaboration I had hoped for. It was more like, here's an envelope with some music in it, and then maybe some phone calls back and forth. But it wasn't a sit-down writing session, because Brett was at that point writing for other a lot of people. But he did do everything he said he was going to do. And every time since then that I've met him, he has been nothing but an ultimate genuine guy, super sweet. He does what I claim to do, which is claim to have memory of, of a lot of our exchanges. 
but there was one time on the side stage at the Cat House Live some 10 years ago. He sat on my side of the stage. And when I came over for a drink of water, he's like, you're the insulin guy. And I was just like, you know, oh, shit. I mean, that's some next level memory. Wow. Because, I mean, for me, he became one of the biggest rock stars in the world. And while I didn't achieve that level of success, you know, whatever success we did achieve, I've always had great admiration for Brett as a performer, as a songwriter, and as a businessman being able to market and sell that band. So, yeah, he's always been a really good dude. And, you know, I would love to be able to sit down with him in a a non-show environment and have a beer or have a sandwich or whatever and talk with him and see if he really does recall any of it. Because, you know, my memories, they're childhood memories, and I may have grandiose them to some degree in my mind. But that is how I do remember it is that, you know, he was like, don't get in a fight with Bobby. And and my thing was, yeah, you just got to take her with you and drop her off wherever you want. He gave me his personal number. It was a home number because nobody had cell phones back then. So it was a number to the Poison House in Hollywood Hills. And we went there. We grabbed couches. We grabbed beds. We did all of that. And he turned us on to numerous contacts, to which all were very helpful and supportive of what became to be tough. I've heard nothing but good things about him, especially going back to those like early days. Ryan Roxy, guitarist for Alice Cooper. And he tells a story of when he first moved to L.A., he got to know Brett. And I think Ryan got a couple of his guitars stolen. And Brett was like, don't worry, don't worry. Let me make a few phone calls. And like within a few hours, Brett Michaels had relocated these guitars. He put the word out that some guitars had got stolen and he got them back for him. I mean, what that, what a lovely guy. To, you know, and again, during that time, Poison was probably, you know, neck and neck with Guns N' Roses and, you know, the L.A. Guns of the World and the Faster Pussycats and all of that. But, you know, again, my timelines might not be fully synced up, but they were the biggest band in Hollywood. And or look what the Cat Dragon had just dropped. And he was always a genuine guy. Come across his path a number of times. We're not best friends, obviously, but and not to say that we're, you know, we have any animosity. We're just, he's got his life, I've got mine. But anytime I've come in contact with him, I've always felt that it was really genuine. Whereas, you know, you can meet other people and you just kind of feel like you're being passed along. And I also understand that part of being a musician as well. You know, life's hectic and, you know, everybody wants a piece of your space. And sometimes you just want to go get a hot dog and, you know, sit down with your girlfriend and everybody's, you know, up in your business. I don't begrudge anybody for however they've handled their business other than the way I've handled mine, which was, you know, I wish I would have done things a little bit differently in the earlier days of tough. And, you know, they say stardom goes to your head, which we weren't even stars then, but we were signed and we worked hard to get there, but it did definitely go to, you know, egos arised. No doubt. Was there actually a time when you, Greg, and Kenny were all out in L.A. at the same time? There had to have been. Yeah, because, I mean, there were some times where I lived with Kenny at what I think they called the Keel Mansion at that time. So Kenny had a guest house in Venice Beach with Ron and his family. And I think me and George were sleeping on a couch and a floor there. I know that Greg was living in like Torrance or Santa Monica. So, yeah, there was definitely some times. I don't know that there was any one time where the three of us were together in a single spot in L.A. But you're out there working and building stuff up yeah, at the same time. everybody's out there working. You know, Greg's obviously a handful of years in advance of me as far as progressing his career. And his level of contacts are great. And he's super well-respected, slightly feared. Always good to have just that little bit. Yeah, he helps keep the drummer in line. But, you know, I'm trying to think if there was ever a time where the three of us ever performed either on the same. I know that I've done shows where Tough played 
like on a three-day festival where Tuck played day two and Badlands played day three. Yeah, because didn't you do a show in Arizona with Tuff and Badlands, which your dad was at? Yeah, one of the greatest experiences of my life. Because at that point, my parents really, you know, they're like, oh, God, we're losing another one. Kenny and Greg were never going into my mom's makeup cabinet, stealing lipstick and hairspray and eyeliner. So, you know, my dad, my old man would walk in and be like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, he probably thinks I'm a trans, which, you know, maybe I was. I mean, I'm not. But, you know, I was very metrosexual back then as were everybody that was doing the glam party. Uh, and they had no idea how to deal with it. You know, they had no idea. So they had maybe come to a sound check at one point, but I don't think they really saw what I was trying to accomplish until they came to that show in Phoenix, where we were on a different day than Badlands. But we were also shooting a video for All New Generation that day. There were people, you know, clamoring at the gates, trying to meet us. I remember that you know, we were still a young band on that event and that my parents had to park three miles away. And somehow I was, you know, me being the egomaniac shot caller guy. And I'm like, I need a golf cart to go pick up my mom and dad right now. Well, this isn't going to fucking happen, you know, probably throwing a fit, but they got a golf cart and they got, you know, they got, they got some VIP treatment and they got to watch from the side of the stage as we played in front of probably one of the bigger shows I've ever done. And you guys were looking good at that point. We were in our prime. I mean, it was like all cylinders were firing. We had already released the first video. We were working on the second. Everything was thumbs up, green lights, smiles, and hugs. That was such a great experience. You know, we stayed in Phoenix and I, I went and watched Badlands the next day. And I believe at that time, me and Greg had some, we were at odds with each other because I was going by the last name of Chase and not Chase on. And he felt like I was trying to separate myself from the family. I don't know if he realized at that time that I was just trying to create my own lane. I wasn't denying that I was a Chase on. I was just trying to create my own identity. He never read Metal Edge then, I'm guessing, or looked in Hit Parade. It had got it straight away. It's like Todd Chase fits right into all that. Right, right. Look, it's their younger sister. Do you have any um, fond memories of visiting the UK on the American Dream Tour when Tuff came over for that show in 91? Where did we play in London? The Astoria, I believe. And then I believe we had an in-store prior to that show. Those were epic things. I mean, those were like bucket list. Oh, my God. It's going, you know. From here, I'm going to be Guns N' Roses or Nikki Six or whatever. You know, we're going to be Motley Crue. We're going to be Poison. There was reps from MTV there. You have all these, you have a full day of interviews and luncheons and in stores and all of that. And while we got that in America, for sure, it's really heightened when you jump the pond. And, you know, you're in London for the first time. You don't know how money works. It's way in your pockets down because it's so freaking heavy. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's people on the wrong side of the streets. The beer tastes different. The food tastes different. Girls are still beautiful girls and all of that. But just that whole day or two day process of what we did there in London is a remarkable experience for a young man coming up. You know, and again, I wish that I had a better mindset going into it now in hindsight. I think we could have taken better advantage of our opportunity. You know, I hear a lot that you guys should have been this or you should have achieved this level of, of success. And the reason we didn't get that was only our fault. It wasn't Nirvana's fault. You know, it wasn't the grunge movement. I mean, I'm sure that had some impact. It was our own faults that we didn't learn to live, love and adapt. So, you know, we got to learn to live with each other as a band. I carry a lot of that weight on my shoulders. Not that I have, you know, great regret or resentment, but I do look back at it and say, man, if had I just been more mature, more smart, better 
prepared to understand how from a business mind perspective. And, you know, when you're 21, 22, you know, like Michael and Stevie, you know, they were the businessmen of the band and me and George were the songwriter slash social guys of the band, but none of us knew what the fuck we were really doing. You're just, you know, you're on the phone and you're sending out packages. And when somebody cuts you a check for a thousand dollars, you're a businessman now. You know, we were all just a bunch of kids trying to meet girls, make music, and then, you know, everything else got in the way. And, you know, and I think if there's any message out there for any of the young bands that might come across this is that family first brothers, once you lose that aspect of what you're doing, you're just sitting on a time bomb. It's just ticking and ticking and ticking. And at some point it will explode or implode and you'll lose everything that you work for. And it won't be until some years down the road that you'll be like, fuck, had I only not been a dick or had I just been nicer or smarter or because it wasn't like we weren't committed. We worked our asses off. We did everything that was asked of us. But in tandem to that, there's the whole ego feeling like we had earned more than what we had gained at that time type of mentality, where it has had we looked at it as, and I can't say we, because I can't speak for the other guys in the band. Had I looked at it more like building blocks and stepping stones and treated it with more respect, I might be doing that arena tour as an old man right now, like Guns N' Roses does, or doing these things that Poison does, or being one of the headliners on the Monsters of Rock cruise, as opposed to, you know, a level B or C band that's on those cruises, which I'm very grateful and happy to be. But, you know, I made the decisions I made and made the moves that I made, and that was the result. There's so many elements involved. You're in that bubble. I say you're working so hard, the stress levels go up so high when you're busting your ass and like, you see other bands doing something. It's like, well, we've worked as much as them. There's so many elements in the whole thing to get that longevity. And I say only in hindsight, 20 years down the line, it's like, shit. I'm not in that boat alone. I'm sure there are a billion musicians that were either one hit wonders or, you know, maybe even had the greatest garage band of all time, but couldn't get out the side the garage door. Couldn't figure out that world math of how to be you know, just be a person, you know, and you're going to write better songs as being a person and you're going to be a better bandmate as being a person. At that time, it was, a, you know, I'm not sure if I was an employee to the record label, but you'd be a better business person as a person. But, you know, you can't go back, brother. There's no going back. I try to take what failures I've had or lack of success or mistakes I've made and apply them to my real life today. Exactly. And you're channeling that knowledge. And don't get me wrong. I'm still fucking up today. Get that. <laughs> In your time away from Tuff, did you ever realize that Stevie was the guy behind Metal Sludge? I was aware of Metal Sludge once Stevie and I had parted ways, once I left Tuff. We weren't on speaking terms for a handful of years. Yeah, that's why I was wondering. I knew you weren't like, in contact. Yeah, I mean, he and I, you know, we went from being best friends to mortal enemies back to being best friends to now we're brothers. You know, we put all of that stuff, of course, behind us. That's a lifetime ago. I think I had called him because I'd maybe seen an article at one point and he may have let me know that he was the guy behind it. And I was like, fuck, you know, world bomb right there. That That is that's crazy because he was loved and hated all at the same time. And now, again, in hindsight, which, uh, you know, a lot of the interviews I do have a lot to do with hindsight. He's such a brutally honest motherfucker that it makes perfect sense. Had I been any type of detective, I could have done the math. But uh, no, I don't think in the beginning I realized it was him. I think the reveal came for me maybe a year after it had gone and, and seen some success and was a thing, was relevant. And everybody was like, who the fuck's this metal sledge guy? And I think when I first learned, I was under a, you know, a handshake promise to be, don't say anything, brother. 
But he had another guy with him that was helping him do it. But the attitude of it all comes from him and still remains to this day. Brutally honest. You lived out in Los Angeles for over 20 years, then moved to Cleveland with your wife. And you've got your business smoking rock and roll with uh, Mr. Billy Morris, who we met earlier, formerly of Warrant, but also a tough alumni. How has it been to see that whole project take off and grow? First and foremost, amazing. Just absolutely a dream. So as I traversed through life, at some point between being a musician and being a musician again and a food truck, I so. And not just a musician, but I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to get a record deal. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to get on MTV. And while it was never so much about the fame or the money, I certainly wanted to be able to make a living, but I wanted to put my footprint down on that. So I put my mind to it and I did it. At some point in the invisible years, I wanted to be involved in the video game industry. So I struck out, reached out to a bunch of companies that were designing controllers for PlayStation and Xbox. And I was an avid gamer and said, I'm going to come in and I'm going to design product for you guys. Never designed a fucking thing. After about a year or two of really, you know, knocking on doors and trying to get in. Next thing I know, two or three years later, I'm spending a month, two to three weeks at a time in China, working with manufacturers developing video game controllers. Just to rewind quickly, when you was out with Tuff at the hotels, was you always looking for the arcade game in the lobby? (laughs) I was the last guy to sound check because I was always on the bus or the RV playing video games. And I'm getting called saying, Chase, we got a sound check. So I was a video game addict from very early on. I mean, from Intellivision all the way. I mean, I don't play so much anymore because my hands won't allow me to do it. But I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be involved in video games because I had kind of put my music career behind me at that point. You know, for a good five, eight years, I was integrated and I was I developed some really kick ass products that you don't get credit for. It's not like writing a song where your name's on it. But there were things that I developed back in the original Xbox PlayStation era for some third party companies that were sold in Best Buy and that were sold all over the world and things that were my concepts that I thought were amazing and that were great. And I would go to China and develop these ideas with engineers and I would lie to people saying, I'm an engineer too. And they're like, can you read the schematic? I'm like, I have no idea what I'm fucking looking at. You know, if you can make what I want to have happen, happen. So to the food truck thought of it all, it was the same thing. I was always a, a, you know, a good or aspiring home cook. Not always good. Still not always good. I mean, I, I can fuck up a steak at the drop of a hat. Where was your favorite place to eat after a gig in Hollywood? Well, I think that goes without saying the rainbow everybody's favorite place to eat was the rainbow. Oh shit. There was a couple of Mexican joints that were out there that were really good. Casa Vega that was in uh, in North Hollywood was amazing. I think there was like a, a rock and roll Susie joint in North Hollywood. That was great. There's another Mexican joint that was like in Hollywood, but at one point I got a pig's foot in my meal. That kind of freaked me out. Nowadays, pig foot's a delicatessen. I eat the shit out of that pig's foot right now. But back then, I was like, hey, why is there a pig foot in my taco? But hands down, you know, the rainbow is where you wanted to go. I mean, the social element of what the rainbow was was awesome. But they legitimately make a fucking kick-ass pizza. And the last time I was there, and again, maybe five, 10 years ago, and probably some 15 years since I had been there last, same door guys, you know, a lot of the same people still recognize me. 50 pounds heavier, black mohawk, not looking anything like the guy from Top. Todd, how are you? It's been a while. You're like, I'm just like, I'm shocked. I'm flummoxed. I'm beyond myself with joy. 
and I didn't have to stand in line. They got me a table right away. I was like, this is fucking ridiculous. But, you know, through that process of, you know, in between the music and the food thing, you know, I started diving into Food Network and watching YouTube videos and experimenting with food at home. And then when I met Billy and his question to me was, what are you going to do here? And I was, the idea was I was going to do a food truck, but I had no means. Didn't have the wherewithal financially to do it, but he did. So we collaborated. My original idea was going to be Mexican food, tacos and stuff, but he had the rock and roll barbecue idea. I'd never made a brisket in my life, never made a pork butt in my life, never made a barbecue sauce in my life. Went home, did my own in-home schooling. We test kitchened it for maybe six months, and we are now embarking on our seventh year of great success and seeking out new levels of expansion. So, you know, restaurants are not out of the question. We've been searching for the right restaurant now for about two years. You know, a good place where it's live music, where we can embrace the whole brand. Smoke and rock and roll. So barbecue, live music, cool bar, great space. Definitely some 80, 90 nostalgia built into all of that. You know, I don't want to say hard rock, but like a hard rock made from two bluegrass guys. Meaning that, you know, guys that had our roots in Cleveland, and that is still a goal. We just haven't found the right venue yet, but we're always looking. When it comes, it'll come. You'll know straight away. It does. I mean, we've looked at places. We've tried some ideas. You know, I'm always open to looking at anything. When you have a partner, there's always two different. It's like being in a band. But I'm hoping that I've made that maturity that we've talked about the lack of what I had before. He presents his ideas. I present mine. And they don't always, you know, they don't always go in line. Probably more often than not, they go head to head. That's the best way sometimes. Well, right. But we both walk away at the end of the day, giving each other a hug almost every night. You know, I mean, he is my best friend. And still to this day, every time I see him, when I walk into the shop or I see him on the street, it starts with a hug. So it's not like, oh my God, not this fucking guy. It starts with, here's my dude, Billy Morris. What's up, pal? And it's the same from him back to me. And what can we create today? What can we do that's awesome today and make this thing happen and move it all forward? Right. And the goal is obviously mutual success. You know, Billy's got a family. He's got three young boys. You know, I have my family here. We live one street apart. Our business is a quarter mile from where we live. I mean, everything is really condensed into this area in Northeast Ohio that we operate out of. We're surrounded by wonderful people that work for us and work with us. You can't do it. It takes a village to run anything. You know, it's not like, you know, me and Billy don't go out on the food trucks every day and pop up on the corner of whatever two streets and are trying to sling. You know, the business has grown beyond that. But we still try to make our presence at a majority of the events, particularly private or larger events where we try to show up. But, you know, without the team that backs us, you know, they'll got to have that drummer. (laughs) I love it, man. Sorry to all the, the world of drummers out there. They're like, fuck you. <laughs> have any of your brothers sampled your Mighty Fine Brisket? They have not. Nobody to date from my family, I don't believe, has had it. Oh, my little brother Mitch. Yes, my little brother Mitch. You know, I'm never going to get a... Not that I think I need an honest review. I stand behind the food. I know the food is good. We've been doing this for a minute. You don't stay in business for seven plus years if you suck if you don't treat your customers and your staff with respect, and more importantly, the product that you're serving. While I still do tough shows, I'm 98% smoke and rock and roll, 2% tough, if we're talking professionally. I still love when tough gets to go out and do what we do, and it's always a great break from my everyday thing because smoke and rock and roll is an everyday thing for me. This is what I live and breathe now. This is my new base. This is my new Ampeg SVT. 
And I love it. It doesn't come without its challenges, but what business does not, you know, right? So it's just, I feel like I'm in a better headspace now to navigate those challenges. Even the food truck community and not even the food truck, but just the chef community here in Northeast Ohio that surrounds me is it's a really beautiful collaborative type of thing. And I think that's what brought me into the world of being a chef or a restaurateur or an entrepreneur or whatever it is that I am, is that chefs are so much like musicians. The lifestyle is very similar. You work shitty hours, you get shitty pay, you know, you're probably going to leave at the end of the night with a couple of cuts, but you might get a free meal. You were primed and ready for this new lifestyle. (laughs) It was really an easy transition for me. My hands still hurt if I'm breaking down and I'm doing some fine cutting. It's the same as playing my bass for an hour and a half or two hours a night or for a three or four hour rehearsal. If I'm holding a chef's knife and I'm, you know, I'm pitching in and I'm getting things done, trimming a brisket, that's not easy work. I have nothing but the utmost respect for anybody that works in the cooking business because it is no joke, man. It is a low appreciation, underpaid, undervalued, falls to the wall lifestyle. And I love it. And I love everybody that does it. I really love everybody that does it with me. And anybody that's willing to share that journey with me or Billy and smoking rock and roll or Anytime you go to a restaurant or even McDonald's or your local fast food joint, somebody put something into making that happen. It just doesn't doesn't show up. Somebody's got to kill something. Somebody's got to make something. Somebody's got to present something. And hopefully by the time those three things happen and and it's sitting in front of your face, you take some appreciation to it and uh, give it the respect and love it deserves because it ain't easy. Todd, it's been a pleasure. Dude, it's so good to see your face. I'm waiting for these tough shows back in the UK, man. You know, we're long overdue. I I see that Pretty Boy Floyd rolls out there on occasion. Obviously, you know, a lot of our peers find a way to get out there. I would love to do a one-off if it made sense. You know, for us, it's not about the money. It's about the opportunity. Like So like the last time we came to the UK. We saw you at the Diamond in Sutton in Ashfield. The Diamond and is it Zoe? That's the girl. That's right. Her parents own the joint and the beers were amazing. Yeah, that was such a great, great time. Again, once you get there and you're with your mates and you're seeing everybody and, you know, the ales are going down, you know, and the age starts setting and everything starts blurring out as to the specifics of it all. But no, that was the diamond. And then the experience I got to have in Scotland and London. London was cool, but the diamond was the fucking shit. And that whole, I think we were there for three days. And, you know, if we were to ever go back, I would rob you of more time, pun intended to your name. but. I would like to have spent more time with you and really have developed and cultivated a deeper friendship with you while we were there, because I feel like we're kindred spirits, brother. Awesome, man. Well, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. I appreciate you spending some time. I loved seeing everything going great with you and Billy with Smoking Rock and Roll. It's awesome. So um, hopefully when I get back over to the States, if I can do a dive at to Ohio, I'll be there. <laughs> you let me know, brother. And if an opportunity comes up, I'm sure Stevie's got his ear to the floor listening for any opportunity to bring us back over the pond. Or if you can ever get on one of them cruises, brother, I'm telling you, that is a lifetime experience, man. You would love that shit. All over it. I'll let you get back to the day job, sir. Thank you, my man. Love you, mate.
How great was Todd Chase on? I want to thank him so much for being so open and cool about his career. And it's so great to see him out there doing so well with Smoking Rock and Roll. And I look forward to when he next hits the stage with Tuff, hopefully here in the UK. Please check out everything Smoking Rock and Roll at simply smokingrockandroll.com. And if you want to grab the new reissue of the classic Tough album, What Comes Around Goes Around, then you can find that at toughcds.com. That is all for today's show. Please be sure to check back every Tuesday and Friday for a new episode or catch up on all old shows at stvpod.com. But till we chat again, take care of yourselves and speak soon. <laughs>